couple of announcements. First of all, tonight at 6 p.m., we are hosting a prayer time. So uh, in the fellowship hall, we'll have some tables set up and we'll gather in groups. If you want to do it online, uh, you can check the website. Uh, we'll send out an online link for those who would like to join us some other way through uh, a Zoom call or whatever. But we're going to spend an hour um, just praying, listening to the Word. Uh, we're going to sing some songs because uh, there's nothing more important that we can do than pray until we have prayed. So we uh, need to keep that in mind. Secondly, I'd uh, just like to say if you're a guest, uh, I know we're, more people are coming back and we have some visitors. Uh, and so if you're a guest for the first time, there is in the bulletin a flap on the bulletin. If you got a bulletin, if you didn't get a bulletin, they're at the Welcome Center. And uh, if you have time, if you would want to, uh, not required, but we'd like you to fill that out and give us some contact information. That'd be great. And you can just drop it in the offering box, which is on the welcome table because we're not taking up offering as these days. So we want to encourage you to do that. That's all the announcements I have. So uh, I uh, would like you to pray with me and then uh, got a couple things to share and then we'll dig into the passage for today. So let's pray. Father, how great is our God. Uh, what a joy it is to, to join in and sing uh, with others. How great is our God. And I pray that we would grow in our captivation with the greatness and the magnitude of who you are. And your majesty would control us. The greatest thing about a person, greatest thing is what we think of you and I pray that you would elevate our thinking and you'd inform our thinking and I pray that you'd transform our lives as we spend time in your word this morning worshiping you in spirit and in truth we pray in Jesus name amen I've been doing some thinking uh, this has nothing to do with the, the, the message this morning but has to do with life uh, that we've been going through and I was reading recently through 1 Thessalonians as part of my reading, and I came across a passage which is not an unfamiliar passage, but Paul says there to the church at Thessalonica, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. And I just want to say thank you to Creekside Church and our family at Creekside and those who are friends who've been joining us for what's been a, a really trying and difficult year uh, for churches and for believers and people seeking and searching. And so I just want to say thanks. Thanks for everybody who stepped up to the plate 
who's made online ministry possible, who've been here week in and week out uh, serving the Lord, those who've been able to join us online and felt comfortable doing that, those who visited us online, those who were back in person, those who've been in person, those who are serving in every capacity, some who've been stepping out of their comfort zones in, in, in trying to serve other people and just people who are faithful to pray and be involved. So thank you. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you all, uh, making mention of you in my prayers, and I know that that's true for all of us in the leadership at Creekside. And I just want to say, you know, COVID is real, and I'm a testament to the fact because I had it, and it was bad, and I had it for two weeks, and uh, wouldn't wish it on anyone, okay? But COVID is, is it's real, and it's real bad for some, and it's not really bad for others, Okay, and so we all have our own experiences and we all have our understanding of that. And so we've tried to take it seriously, um, but not try to give it an outsized influence in our life, okay? And uh, want you to know, uh, the elders of Creekside, we've been thinking and praying about this, and, and it's our intention and it's our prayer that we can continue to progress in moving back to uh, fully normal, quote unquote, to where we were, okay? We're, we're pretty much there, but we're looking this summer at some activities that we hadn't, didn't do last summer that we're hoping to be able to do this summer. We're going to offer some stuff throughout the summer that we'll be keeping you posted of. We're going to have a, a 4th of July gathering here at the church of some sort. We're not exactly sure about that, but hopefully by next fall, we're, it's our prayer that we're all back and running with everything that was, was going on. But we understand that everybody has their own comfort level, and uh, just wanted to say, you know, that, that God's call for the church is to be the church, and that is to, to model uh, unity. When, when Jesus prayed in John 17, he said, Father, let them be one, even as we are one, that the world may know that you have sent me. So unity in the body is the boldest and grandest testimony to the world that Jesus is real. Uh, because look, we, 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 are a, we are a really diverse group, okay, in, in a lot of different ways, but God wants us to be unified, and Paul goes on in 1 Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians 3, and he, he prays for the, the church at Thessalonica, and he says that, I, I pray that you, you may increase and abound in your love one for another, first, and then for all men. Abound in our love for one another. You know, loving each other. Whether, whether you're wearing a mask or you're not wearing a mask. Uh, whether you're vaccinated or you're not vaccinated. Whether you want to get vaccinated or you don't want to get vaccinated. Uh, and I could list a lot of other ways that we're, we're different from each other. But if we're going to love each other, and, and as Paul goes on to say, excel still more in love, it seems to me we've got to avoid two unhealthy pendulum swings. Okay, and the first pendulum swing is that uh, fear, not faith, would rule us. That would be the, the wrong, unhealthy thing, that, that fear rather than faith would rule us. And Habakkuk 2.4 says that the righteous will live by faith. In Hebrews 13.6, the writer of Hebrews says that uh, we, we have not, uh, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. Okay? And so uh, I just want to say this. There's been a lot of stuff going on about, oh, these people are afraid, these people are afraid, and maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But the prophet said 
the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So if I have trouble discerning my own heart motives, uh, I really have no business trying to discern your heart motives. And in the body of Christ, we need to be careful because there are a lot of reasons why people would do things or act in ways that some of us may seem to think are fearful uh, when they maybe just be prudent and wise and intelligent because I just don't have all the information. I don't know every jot and tittle about your life as to determine why you would do a certain thing or why you wouldn't do a certain thing, and you don't have it about me. So let's exercise grace because we don't know everybody's motive and what's going on in everybody's person, so we best not judge each other. Fear, not faith, is a wrong, healthy, unhealthy thing. Uh, the, the other pendulum swing would be that we would despise each other instead of love each other. <laughs> you know, we call to love each other in the body of Christ. Paul said it to the Thessalonians, excel still more. Jesus uh, was our example, and Paul said it in Philippians chapter 2, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but in humility of mind, let each of you regard others as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own selfish interests, but also for the interests of others. And so, I have faith, perhaps, to go without a mask, but you, perhaps, are freaked out if I go without a mask, and so then, for the sake of love, maybe I need to wear a mask. We can argue about the, <clears throat> the finer points of whether that's scientifically reasonable or whatever it is. <clears throat> We'd, I'd be glad to do that, <clears throat> excuse me, with you. <clears throat> but I, I've had COVID. And so I have antibodies in me. I'm not as concerned about giving you a disease that I'm immune to and don't have symptoms for. Now, if I'm running around with a runny nose and coughing and hacking all over the place, a different story. I shouldn't be here. Okay? All I'm asking is, folks, let us love one another as Christ loved each other. Satan would love nothing more than to use fiction, that's falsehood, to bring friction that would lead to factions in the church of Jesus Christ. And we are supposed to be a testimony to the world that Jesus is alive, and yet we're running around snipping at each other, biting at each other's heels, and, 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 and doing all this sort of stuff. No, that's not what God has called us to. I think Bob Goff <clears throat> captured the essence of it when he said, don't let being right talk you out of being kind. Regardless of what it is, Regardless of which side you're on, you know, I'm right. Oh, does that mean I shouldn't be kind? No, doesn't mean that. And so just asking that, that God calls us to excel still more. By this will all men know that you are my disciples. If you have love one for another. And not to, not, you know, so we can, we can love each other. You know, I'm in a family. Do I always agree with everybody in my family? I mean, do you agree with everybody in your family? You like, I mean, we'll talk about politics. We'll talk about, uh, you know, leisure activities. Thanks, Brandon. Appreciate it, brother. Um, and I just drank a whole bottle of water before I came up here. So, uh, I don't always agree with everybody in my family. You don't always agree with everybody in your family. But you know what? You're still family. You still hang in there. You can disagree, you can challenge each other, you can encourage each other, and at the end of the day, you still love each other. Even though you don't like some people, particularly, 
you know. I mean, some people are just harder to like than others, and I'm harder to like for some people than others, okay? But in the church of Jesus Christ, that's the, the glue is the blood of Christ, which links us together. Oh, you know, you can say, well, I don't know, they, they, the, I, the policies they're engaged in, the things that they're doing, I just really don't like, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go somewhere else. Okay, so you go somewhere else, instead of being part of the solution here, uh, you go be a problem somewhere else. And then you find other people over there that are just as irritating as they were here, just about a different thing. Let's act in love, okay? That's my call. That's what Jesus calls us to do. And that's what I'm asking us to do and help each other do that. End of sermon number one. Okay. It was Martin Luther King Jr. who gave this famous quote in his I Have a Dream speech, right? I have a dream that one day every man will be judged not by the color of his skin, but by the content of his character. Because character counts. Character reveals a person's true identity and instructs us on how to treat them properly based on their character, not any other, uh, other thing. I heard this story a long time ago. There was a, a young man who was wanting to be part of a certain mission agency. And so he was interviewing for this position as a, a mission agent with or missionary with this group. And so he was told to show up at 5 a.m. to the missionary director's office. And so he went to the building where they were, and he went to the office where the director was, and it was locked at 5 a.m. And so he sat outside in the hallway from 5 a.m. until 8 a.m. when they unlocked the office door, and then he went inside and sat in the lobby of the office for another two hours, and then after two hours, he was called into the director's office. And the director introduced himself, and the guy introduced himself, and he says, thank you for coming in. He said, I just want you to know that you are hired. You've proven through your perseverance and your patience and your demeanor that you are worthy to be a missionary in this mission agency. Character counts. And as we come this morning to a very, very familiar passage to many of us, Jesus feeding of the 5,000, we see that it is Jesus' character that is on display. That Christ's character reveals the fact that he is indeed the King of Israel, the Lord of the nations. He is the Messiah. As Jesus' popularity was increasing with some, the hostility towards him was also ramped up by many around him. And so Matthew chooses to show Jesus' compassion, powerful compassion, towards the people there to convince them that he really is who he said he was and that as a result of that, there should be action response on their part and likewise on our part. His humanity demonstrates his true identity as the Son. And so I invite you to turn, maybe you get there now, Matthew chapter 14, because your phone app might not be working properly, okay? And so you need to get there. It's, it's hilarious to me. You know, it's like I'm just kind of old school. I just kind of have a Bible, you know? But yesterday we're at this men's thing, and we got Larry Westfall up there who's in his upper 70s, and he's using his phone, you know? I got, a, I got this passage of Scripture I'm going to share with you. 
I'm just laughing inside. This is just hilarious to me. It's good. Thanks, Larry. I called you out, brother. It's no problem, okay? So we're in Matthew chapter 14. And in Matthew chapter 14, in verses 13 through 21, there are three loving responses, expressions of Jesus that serve, first of all, to confirm his identity as the Messiah. But I think they go beyond that. They don't just confirm his identity as the Messiah. They convince us as human beings of our own frailty of our depravity, and compel us to seek him for mercy in saving us, or else, if we're already a child of God, his mercy in showing it to other people. And then they serve as a comfort. What, what goes on here comforts me when I think about what Jesus did with these people. And so we have the text before us. I'm going to read the text, verses 13 through 21, Matthew chapter 14. Now, when Jesus heard it, we'll get to that in a minute, he withdrew from there in a boat to a lonely place by himself. And when the multitudes heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when he went ashore, he saw a great multitude and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him saying, the place is desolate. And the time has already passed, so send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. That is, bring the fish and the bread to him. And ordering the multitudes to recline on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fishes, and looking up towards heaven, he blessed the food, and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitudes. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up what was left over of broken pieces, twelve baskets, twelve full baskets. And there were about five thousand men who ate aside from women and children. Wow. Now, most of you have heard this story probably many times. Maybe you've never heard this story. It doesn't really matter. We're going to dig it. The first demonstration, loving expression I see from Jesus is we see our Lord's sorrow. Now you go, whoa, where's it? We see that. He didn't say any word. There's not that word sorrow. It's not in the text, okay? Well, let's trace it from the beginning. In verse 13, it says, now when he, Jesus heard it, Meaning, what just came previously, the disciples of John had come to Jesus and informed him that the Baptist had been beheaded. Ouch. When Jesus heard it, that news, he withdrew in a boat to a lonely place by himself, verse 13. Now, apparently, if you looked at the other parallel passages, which I've done in Mark chapter 6 and Luke chapter 9 and uh, John chapter 6, we see that Jesus went by himself with the disciples, okay? So he was by himself with the disciples, uh, going somewhere, seeking solitude. And why would he do that? I mean, Jesus is supposed to be on call, right? He's supposed to be at our beck and call. And so why would he seek this? I think we see his humanity. I have three reasons that, that came to my mind. And the first reason he would seek solitude would be for safety. What had just happened to John? And that was because of what Jesus was doing. Because he thought John was Jesus raised, or he thought Jesus was John raised from the dead. 
Now, if Jesus was seeking safety, it would have only been not because he was afraid of dying, but because it wasn't his time yet, okay? Just wasn't his time yet. Secondly, he wanted solitude for sanity reasons. We all need some margin. <laughs> we all need some space. And in Mark chapter 6, verse 31, uh, tells us that the crowds were always pressing upon the disciples, so much so that they didn't even have time to do what? To eat. I don't know about you. I mean, is it too early? Yeah, it's probably too early. To, I start talking about food, you're going to get hungry. But I, I get hungry. It's like, I know I'm hungry, you know. I want to eat. Jesus, they didn't even have time to eat. I don't, I don't know how my wife does it. She goes around and she goes, yeah, I just didn't have time to eat today. I go, what? That's just not possible for me. Unless I choose. I mean, I can choose. I have done. I've chosen to fast before. That's a choice. I don't, I don't choose not to eat unless I make a deliberate choice. So he's going for sanity's sake. The constant press of ministry was draining on Jesus and his disciples. And then I think the last reason that came to my mind was I believe there was sorrow in Jesus' heart upon hearing the news that John the Baptist had been killed. Now, why would Jesus be sorrowful? Well, John was his cousin. John was the forerunner, the messenger who went ahead of Jesus, and John was the one who baptized Jesus. He was the one who was declaring, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was his cousin. And John the Baptist's death was a foreshadowing of Jesus' own death. He knew that it was a prefigurement of what was happening, going to happen to him. And so I think Jesus wanted to process the pain of his loss and the prospect of his own tragic death at Calvary. There's a lot going through Jesus' mind at that point. He knew the time was coming close. I remember as a 19-year-old when my grandfather passed away and uh, I, I, I remember driving home from the hospital and driving my mom and, and maybe even my grandma home from the hospital and I was, I was driving, you know, so I was being the tough guy, you know, and all this stuff and uh, everybody got settled in my grandma's house and I remember uh, after they all got settled, I just went outside and I went on the side of the garage and I just started weeping, weeping and weeping because of the loss of my grandpa and I was his only grandson. And Jesus is fully human and he feels the full weight and impact of the loss of someone that he loves. And there's encouragement there for me and I hope for you too because it says in John chapter 11, verse 35, when Jesus came to the tomb of Lazarus, shortest verse in the Bible, and most of you, you might know it, Jesus wept. He cares about his loss, but he also cares about our loss. He said, I will never desert you or forsake you. Hebrews 13, 6, which is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 6 and 8. The Lord, and that's a promise uh, given to Moses as he entered into the promised land. It's a promise for every believer that I will never leave you or forsake you. That's, that's good as gold right there. So we see the sorrow of Jesus. And then we see the sympathy 
of Jesus, our Lord. In Mark chapter 6, verse 33, uh, we learn that some of the multitude, the, the, the text of Matthew says that they followed him. Well, some did, but Mark tells us that some got there ahead of him so that when Jesus got out of the boat, we read in Matthew chapter 14, that verse 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great multitude. Well, how does that happen if they're all following him? It can't happen if they're all following him. It happened because many of them ran ahead. You know, see a Galilee is not that big of a place. He was going along the shore. They could see where he was going, and they just anticipated and ran ahead. And so they got there. Five times, it says in this text, a multitude, a multitude, a multitude, a multitude. So we know it's a big crowd. Five times. How big of a crowd? Well, we learned from the last verse, verse 21, there were 5,000 men plus women and children. Easy 20,000, okay? Easy 20,000 in the crowd. So Jesus ran ahead, and here's Jesus. Now, can, you, you, can you relate to this? You know, you're, 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 you're expecting rest, and your rest is experienced rat race. Oh, you got a day off scheduled? Becomes a day on. All of a sudden, some crisis hits, some emergency comes out, and all of a sudden, the day you off you had planned, you know, a nice, easy day you're going to spend doing a little piddling around, just relaxing, boom, no. Gone with that, it's over. And that's what Jesus had. He was overwhelmed, swamped with people. I remember pretty vividly uh, April 9th, 2011. My wife and I, had just landed at the Des Moines airport after uh, about 12, 13 days of ministry in Europe. And so we're pretty severely in jet lag after a seven-hour time zone change and being en route for a, probably about 30-some hours. We get in the car, and we're driving home to where we lived in northwest Iowa. And this was an evening where a series of serious tornadoes ripped through northwest Iowa. And by God's grace, we must have driven between the tornadoes because it was dark. We couldn't see anything, didn't have our car uh, radio on, the stations or whatever. We get home, and the wind is just, whoosh, you know, we're having severe winds. And so we went into the basement. Actually, I went out and uh, went over and got our youngest daughter who was at the neighbor's, uh, and then I got her and brought her, and we stayed in the basement most of the evening or till late in the night. Then we got up the next day, which was Sunday, and I I was preaching and so I preached the message and I was surrounded by people who were hurting who'd experienced tremendous physical and emotional trauma immediately after church we went out to one of our men's one of the family's homes and a bunch of us spent the afternoon picking up two by fours that were driven into the ground and the complete their machine shed had been completely obliterated and parts of the machinery were all over the fields and we went out and we worked all afternoon swamped thinking well maybe I'd get to catch my breath but no and I'm not complaining I'm just saying this was life, and this is what Jesus was going in his humanity. Think about Jesus. He's recoiling from the loss of John. He's retreating from the drain of, of ministry and life. He's, re, he's, he's trying to resist the zealots who wanted to make him king and put him up on the throne, on a political throne. No, and that wasn't what he was about. And he was removing himself from Herod's possible wrath, and finally, he was readying himself, readying himself to go to the cross. 
Jesus just wanted some time off, you know. He just needed a break. Didn't come, you know. His hope of arriving on this, you know, secluded beach and getting some time, you know, in the, with his feet in the sand, uh, no. Not happening for Jesus that day, you know. I mean, think about this. Some of you, I don't know, I, I've been to, think about going to the Iowa State Fair. You've been to the Iowa State Fair. I mean, this is non-COVID time. But think about just getting a, uh, having a reprieve and you walk into this. It's like, whew. I don't know if you've been, I mean, it's kind of a bothersome thing, the Iowa State Fair, you know, when you're, you're, you're kind of people, wall-to-wall people. It's fun, but it has its own dynamic. So you don't get any rest there. Jesus didn't get any rest. Now, what would you do if you were Jesus? Looking for a break? I'd like, let's get in the boat, boys. Uh, we can go back the other way. The only solitude they had was in the boat. On the trip. Let's get in the boat and leave. Let's tell them, sorry, office is closed, you know? Or else let's hike up into the mountains and see who the, who the stamina people are. Let's make the real cut, you know? Let's hike as high as we can go and see who's left. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. Look what it says here in verse 14. Here is his response, the beautiful response of Jesus at the end of verse 14, and he felt compassion for them. He felt compassion. And Mark's gospel in Mark 6, 34, gives us a fuller description. He says, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And sheep without a shepherd are subject to the wolves. And as a friend of mine has said, an adult male wolf can take down 30 sheep in about uh, two minutes. hamstrings them, then comes back later to finish them off. Jesus saw them with sheep without a shepherd, which is the same language that is used in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, when he came into Jerusalem and he saw the multitudes there like sheep without a shepherd. He's concerned about the people. His passion and his compassion is there, and compassion literally means a visceral response of empathy. And compassion is the, an essential character of God. Psalm 103, beginning with verse 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious. The Lord is. Yahweh is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. That's who God is. It's marked Jesus' life here in Matthew chapter 14. It does again in Matthew chapter 15. We see it in Mark chapter 8 verse 2. Jesus was compassionate and it is also to be manifest in God's people. If we are disciples of Jesus, we will be like Jesus. Paul prayed for the Colossians and admonished them put on a heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Colossians chapter 3 verse 12. We're supposed to be compassionate people just like Jesus was, had compassion. It was compassion that led my friend Ken DeYoung when he went to Haiti and was delivering, rescuing people after the earthquake. He saw their needs. 
And it was his compassion that moved him to start a ministry. It is compassion that moves the folks at Creekside to continue to travel to Peon and to minister among the people there to serve them and to care for them and to raise them, not just out of poverty of finances, but poverty of soul. And that's what we see in the Lord Jesus is that he was, his concern was for these helpless and hopeless and hurting people. And it wasn't just for their physical affliction. Sheep without a shepherd says more than just, oh, these people are hungry. These people are physically needy. No, just because they need healed. And he shows compassion. And that's the crowds we run into today are the same. The greatest concern of Jesus is not for their physical well-being, but for their spiritual well-being. He's concerned about their soul, the sickness of their soul, and then and now. I mean, people struggle. You and I, we all struggle. The people we're around, they struggle with the demands of daily existence, (laughs) you know? I mean, your dishwasher breaks, and we have first world problems, you know, like, oh, you think that's the end of the world? And we got people in Haiti don't know where their next meal's coming from. We have the rigors of ritualistic religion that doesn't really satisfy our soul. Well, we went to church, we did, we stood up, sat down, fight, 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 did all of our, you know, whatever we need to do to think that we're okay with Jesus, and then we left and we went, well, okay, I don't feel much better. People are sick. People don't feel well. Some people are abused. Some people have financial problems. This is part of life. And what do, we, what do they need? Well, I mean, look around, you think. Well, this week in, Min, in Minneapolis area, you had this uh, the area of Brooklyn Center. The place is in turmoil. You can go to the border and you got 20,000 uh, uh, miners, you know, struggling to know if they're going to live. People last summer after the derecho, they didn't know. Some of them survived barely and then their places were a mess. It's life. And what Jesus does, his heart of compassion always moves his hands to action. And that's what compassion does. It, it moves us to action. And here's three ways that Jesus acted out of compassion. And first way is to teach them. Now, it's not in this text, okay? So I didn't manufacture it from here. But if you look at Luke chapter 9, verses 10 and 11, it says Jesus was teaching them about the kingdom of heaven. So there you go. What was most important to Jesus? The kingdom of heaven. That they must repent and believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, so that they can have forgiveness and life eternal. That was most important to Jesus. To teach them about the kingdom of heaven. The greatest need of the crowd then and now was not physical relief, but spiritual reconciliation. I ask you this morning, are you reconciled to God? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ and his death and that alone is the payment for your sins so that your sins are forgiven and you have the promise of eternal life with God in heaven when you die? That's the most important thing. That's what Jesus was talking about. And if you know Christ, are we proclaiming it? That's what Jesus did. To these people who were visibly, physically sick and hurting, wasn't their greatest need. The greatest need was Jesus. And so then he, he healed them. That healing was the second thing. In Mark, Matthew chapter 14, verse 14, he had compassion that wanted to alleviate suffering. 
And as believers, that should be our heart as well. It's not an accident that so many Christians, believing Christians, are in the healing professions. And when you think about it, you think about the number of doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists and physical therapists and uh, people in, in any other tangential way connected to healing and helping people. This vast number of them are believers because they're enacting their concern for helping people, their compassion, the healing professions. Jesus performed healing. In this case, in every other case, not just to communicate his care. Yes, he cared about the people, but he wanted to communicate his control over the forces of nature because he is the creator. And of anyone who has power over the forces of nature, Jesus is it. And he wanted to communicate that he had power, authority over these things. Remember Matthew chapter 9, verse 6? They brought the paralytic to him, and the first words out of Jesus' mouth were, get up and take your bed and walk. No. His first words were, your faith has made you well. And then, to prove that he had the ability to forgive the man's sins, he said, take up your bed and walk. Healing is only a taste of the permanent healing that comes to everyone who is a believer in Christ when we leave this earth. That's what Jesus was about. Physical healing is just a taste of what can be temporary. Then he did the feeding. So he's teaching, he's healing, and he's feeding. And he, all the way he's showing his compassion. In verses 15 through 21, his compassion is clean, clearly seen through providing food for a hungry crowd. Okay, And in doing so, he's actually pointing them forward to himself as John's gospel teases it out. But he's saying, look. Look, I'm providing you with this physical food because I'm ultimately the one who is the bread of life, the one who will give life to your soul. He says that in John chapter 6. He cares for the needy, and so should we. And so I ask you this morning, if you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, do you see in Jesus that we don't quite measure up to this? I mean, I'm just not as compassionate as Jesus. I'm just not as powerful as Jesus. I'm just not as nice as Jesus. And, and we need to turn to Jesus for his forgiveness and his mercy. We're convinced that he is truly deity because of the things that he's doing here. God only can do this stuff and convicted of our depravity. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. His kindness towards us when we don't deserve it leads us to repentance. And if you know Jesus Christ... I ask you, think about this. Next time, you, you ever been overwhelmed by work? Swamped by all the chores you got to get done? You know, inundated by the daily demands of everyday life, and then someone comes up to you and they have a need. It might be your neighbor. It might be one of your children. It might be a coworker. Can you help me with this? What do you mean help you? I'm swamped here. I mean, I can't barely keep my head above water. And what is Jesus' response? Will we reflect Jesus' attitude? You know, am I, am I perturbed or do I have pity? Critical or compassionate towards the needs of other people? And these people were only there for themselves. They, they weren't there to cheer Jesus on. You know, this was not the mosh pit crowd at a rock concert. 
They're not, you know, uh, encouraging him. No, it's we came because we have a need. You're going to satisfy our need. And that's what people come to us. We see in Jesus compassion that just doesn't come naturally. And I came across this prayer, and it really speaks to my heart. It says, let me look on the crowd as my Savior did till my eyes with tears grow dim. Let me view with pity the wandering sheep and love them for the love of him. Our Lord was sorrowful. Our Lord was sympathetic. And finally, we see that our Lord was sovereignly in control of all that was taking place. In verse 15, and when it was evening, the disciples came to him saying, the place is desolate. <laughs> Jesus is a, you know, news alert. It's getting late. Uh, we're out here in the middle of nowhere and there's no food. And we got 20,000 people here who came to see you. What should we do? Without adequate food and no access to more. Uh, this last uh, winter, I was able to uh, go to uh, Wells Fargo Arena and we at the state basketball tournament see uh, Timothy Darla's team at DMC play. And uh, it wasn't quite this full. But uh, if you're at Wells Fargo Arena, nobody's going to starve. You know, you got 20,000 people there. What? You got concessions. I mean, you might go broke, but you're not going to starve. Okay. So you can get something to eat. And if you can't get it to eat there, guess what? You can walk to a bunch of restaurants within walking distance. And if you can't walk to those restaurants within a couple miles, there's all kinds of restaurants to eat at if you drive. Not a problem. Not so for Jesus and the crew. Uh, they're out in the middle of nowhere. And they, disciples come up with, I think is a brilliant plan. Every man for himself. You know? It's like... Jesus, we, have no, we didn't bring a big enough bag lunch. You know, we didn't bring enough snack crackers for everybody. Not enough Cheetos. So send them out and, and let them find whatever they can find. But Jesus' plan was different. Radical but intentional. Oh, you feed them. Can you imagine being one of Jesus' disciples and, and Jesus saying, oh, you just take care of it, boys. Is Jesus kind of like, did he... Is he okay? I remember the first time when I was uh, at, a, at a Christian conference and uh, as a college student, and it was like, okay, uh, this afternoon we're going to go do beach evangelism. Okay, like what? Yeah, you're going to go out onto the beach and you're just going to go up to total strangers and you're going to strike up a conversation and, 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 and share Christ with them. And I went, you got to be kidding. Yikes. Well, this is the disciples here. What are we going to do? You're going to feed them. And so then they start, they start, well, Jesus, time out. We only have five loaves and two fishes. And Philip uh, is, uh, is also, it's, it's, it's even worse than, I'm sorry, Andrew, in John chapter 6. Andrew, Andrew puts it this way in John chapter 6, verse 9. He says, but what are these for so many people? I mean, what's going to happen? Some of you are familiar with the story, uh, Unbroken, the story of Louis Zamperini, who was uh, uh, floated in the, in the Pacific Ocean for 47 days. And then he was captured by the Japanese and tortured until the end of the war, World War II. 
He and whoever was with him in that boat, I think there were two or three other guys, they had two canisters of fresh water and a few candy bars for 47 days. Now, they ended up doing some other creative stuff. They found, got some other food, but it wasn't pretty, but they, they got it. Anyhow, not much to, to work with here. So Jesus was asking the disciples to do what was humanly possible, and he did it on purpose. He wanted them to feel the weight of their own inability so they would see the majesty and the sovereignty and the greatness of God. The disciples focused on their inadequacy, and Jesus wanted them to focus on his sufficiency. And you know what? We are no different than them. Oh, think about it. Think about it. You're, you're, you're having tr troubles with your family. I, I, we all have family, right? We have struggles with our family because sometimes we don't always disagree. Struggles with our family? If you're married, sometimes you got marital problems. If you have children, sometimes they're knuckleheads. If you are a child, sometimes your parents are knucklehead and you, you have to, you're trying to deal with that. Financial struggles, financial challenges. Some of you have workplace. Your boss is a knucklehead or, you know, your coworkers are hard to get along with. And it's, it's hard. You don't know what to do. There's peer pressure for young people in school to conform to the rest of the world. There's daunting ministry opportunities that you have, but you're afraid to take them. And what do we do? We look at, well, I don't have enough. And you fill in the blank. I'm not strong enough. I'm not wise enough. I'm not good enough. I don't know what to do. And God says, look. Relax. I've got this. Let's not look at our inadequacy, but the sufficiency of Christ. Not on our meager resources, but his unlimited supply. So Jesus adjusted their attitude. He says, uh, bring them to me, the fish and the, and the bread. And then upon Jesus' instruction, they all sat down in 50s and 100s. We don't learn that from Matthew. We learn it from the other passages. And then notice what it says in verse 19. Well, verse 18, and he said, Jesus says, bring them to me, verse 19, and ordering the multitudes to recline on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up towards heaven, he blessed the food and then he gave the food to the disciples who gave it to the multitudes. The meager amount of food was exponentially multiplied supernaturally. No other explanation. No other explanation. Beyond doubt that this is God. Now, Friday, uh, the, 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 the Shens, which at Creekside in, includes those who are 60 years and older, you had a gathering at uh, Pizza Ranch, right? Anybody give me an amen on that? Did, did you go to Pizza Ranch? Yeah. Okay. I'm guessing within 20 minutes, everybody was full. You know, pretty much, except for Larry. Uh, everybody was full, okay? Sorry, let me pick on you today. Uh, everybody's full, okay? They're, they're satiated, okay? They're, they're satisfied. Well, what Jesus did here wasn't a fabrication. It wasn't a magic trick. It was the real deal. It was proof positive. It was edible. It was tangible. It was credible proof that he is God. And there were leftovers. Everybody's full. He satisfied them, okay? Satisfied them. 
God in the flesh. He's the sovereign Lord of creation who controls and who made this bread, five loaves, two fishes, boom. And guess what? There were leftovers. I have been blessed to grow up in a home that every Christmas and every Thanksgiving I can remember, we had leftovers at the end of the meal. But I want you to say that when we started, we had more than we ended with. When Jesus started, he ended with more than he began with. Right? There's more gathered up than he started with. Twelve baskets, full. This is a miracle that we shouldn't miss. That's absolute declaration that Jesus is God. And it should catch everyone's attention. And then they gather up how many baskets full? Twelve. How many apostles? Twelve. Not accidentally, I think Jesus was giving them a vivid and visual reminder that if you join me in ministry, you will experience my sufficiency. That's encouraging to me. Because there's no promise, you know. God is going to take us where we need to be. He's going to sufficiently provide for us. And in order to, to kind of punctuate the power of God and the connection that Jesus is God, he, he's making reference here to a, a few passages in Scripture that really show us this because what Jesus did was a mirror image of what Elisha did in 2 Kings chapter 4. Only Jesus was grander than what Elisha did. And then we see that Jesus is also uh, brings what he did, brings to mind what God did when he provided for the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness and he provided for them manna, manna that wore out or, or you know, that ended after they got into the promised land. And we see also it's a foretaste. As Jesus was the host, breaking the bread and praying of the glorious feast we'll have in God with him in heaven. Jesus is pointing to himself as the king of kings. He is the bread of life who satisfies our souls. Paul said it in Colossians 2, in him you are complete. Satisfied. No, no lack, nothing lacking. And then he closes there about 5,000 men who ate, aside from women and children, as a reminder that this was supernatural. Jesus is the king. He can supply. Oh, we got several people going on a mission trip. Can God supply the funds needed for the mission trip? Absolutely. He's able to do that. He can give us the eloquence we need to share the gospel with our neighbor and with our coworker. Jesus can do that. He can give us the wisdom that we need to parent our children. Jesus can do that. There's nothing that we need that he isn't, he is able, you know. This is the thing. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20, now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to his power which works within us. He's able. Little is much, you heard it before, where? In the master's hands, right? Little is much. Slinging a stone, take down a giant. Staff, Boom. Scare away the Pharaoh. You know, freak him out. That's all you need. Jesus' hands, bread in a cup. I, I don't know if you're a golfer, you know anything about golf, but, uh, you know, if I put a golf club in my hands, it doesn't mean much. But if Phil Mickelson puts a golf club in his hands, whoo, it means money. Because Phil Mickelson is a professional golfer. Jesus can take whatever it is we have and use it. He supplies our needs, and he'll meet the needs of those around us. And he calls us to join us in this ministry. So that's what Jesus did with the disciples. He didn't just do this for himself. The disciples are part and parcel of it because he wants us to join him in ministry and to share that with other people. 
He wants us to be part of the most generous, gracious, compassionate, merciful, kind, giving operation and truth-telling operation on the planet. And we get to join it. So, there it is. Jesus showing his compassion. Powerfully showing his compassion. Why? He powerfully shows his compassion to confirm that he is the Son of God. The King of Kings. His royal identity. And convince us that if we don't know this King, that we should plead to him for mercy. So that we can be forgiven and have the promise of eternal life. And if we know this King, we should show his mercy to lost people and hurting people so that they too can be part of God's family. And it compels us to know him. And it confirms and comforts us who are believers that God's going to supply and take care of our needs. And what a better way to, to remember all that Jesus means to us than to come to the table, which is our practice at Creekside every Sunday, to take the bread and the cup which as Jesus later says, he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Not cannibalism, no. But he's calling to mind, he's recalling what he's done there in feeding these people in the wilderness and he's pointing them to him as the bread of life so that when we believe in Christ, his death and resurrection as the proof that he paid for our sins and God accepted that payment, then that's what it means to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And so we remember what he's done for us. We take the bread and we take the cup. So in the next few moments, as our, our praise team comes, and as they play, just take some time to search your heart. And if you have sin in your heart, confess your sin and get right with God. And if you don't know Jesus, put your faith or your trust in Christ. If you know Jesus, you're welcome to take the bread and the cup. It's in that little uh, cup there. It's kind of hard. You've got to peel one thing back to get the bread and then the other one back to get the cup. Careful, hold it out away from you so the juice doesn't splatter on you, if you would. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you for Jesus, who is the Son of God, come to save your people from their sins. And I pray that if anyone doesn't know you, that they would turn from their sin and trust in Christ as Savior. I pray that they would repent and see in you that you are the one, only one, the bread of life, who gives life to those who believe. And those of us who know you, Lord, I pray that as we take this bread and this cup and drink the juice, that we would remember the sacrifice you gave for us with joy, knowing that we're in your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Great in all the earth is your glory, O God. The universe declares how amazing you are over history and eternity. You alone are Lord and King. Thanks for coming. We hope to see you next week. <laughs>